Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has six years of law enforcement analysis experience, 11 years of law enforcement experience overall. She has worked with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, the Texas Department of Public Safety, Webb County Sheriff's Office, and now Fugerville Police Department. She is the Regional Director for the Texas Gang Investors Association, and she's also the vice president of ILEA's Lone Star chapter. She recently got her PhD. She's known as the gang analyst. Please welcome Dr. Belinda Pedroza. Bell, how are we doing? Good. How about yourself? I am doing well. So you sent on your resume, Belinda. So I used Belinda, <laughs> even though you told me that no one knows you as Belinda. It's Bell. That's correct. <laughs> So we got a lot to go over today. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Texas and we're going to be talking about gangs. But uh, before we get to all of that, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? It's actually pretty interesting how I came across it. I was at the time working as a corrections officer with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, so the Texas prison system. And I don't want to use the word bored, but I essentially got bored. I actually liked going to school. I was one of those that liked being a student. And I started looking at possible degrees for my master's. And I came across my university, so Tiffin University in Ohio, and they had a master's program specifically for crime analysis. And the more research that I did, I became super interested in it. And that's kind of how I became involved in the realm of crime analysis is actually through my education. When you first start in law enforcement, how did you get involved? So it, when you graduate with your criminal justice degree, you start applying for positions and everybody wants you to have experience, but nobody's essentially willing to hire you so that you can gain that experience. <laughs> and so I had a friend who was a corrections officer at the time. And I was, he went to a different university in Huntsville, Texas. And he started telling me how he was still going to school and was a CEO. And he told me, you know, you should apply. You should come and work in Huntsville, even though I wasn't from the area. And that's kind of how I got involved in the realm of the criminal justice system professionally and in law enforcement was because I needed a job after graduating. And while I did not foresee myself as a corrections officer, I actually really enjoyed it. When you're first starting, when you're first going into the doors, what are some of the things you think of when you think back at during this time? You know, if you've ever met anybody who has been incarcerated, that door slamming behind you is really, really powerful. And it may not be as powerful for us as it is for them because they're living there 
you know, 24, seven, 365, that door slamming behind you really brings you into the reality of what you're involved. It's a whole different world being behind the walls of a prison. Um, it's literally its own community, but with more stringent roles, not for us necessarily, but for them. And we are responsible for the safety and security of not just the offenders, but of the facility and of each other. Right. What are some of the things that you struggled with? What are some of the things that you actually excelled with the job? Well, as a female, I worked in a male penitentiary. So with that came its own battles, uh, not just with the male offenders, but also with my male coworkers. I was 22 when I started working for TDCJ. And, you know, I, I don't want to call myself that I had a baby face, but I definitely looked younger. And, you know, when you're in that kind of environment, just like with officers that are working their beat, they want to be able to be sure that their partner has their back. And sometimes, you know, you see somebody who looks young, who is young, mm -hmm. and you think that they are not willing to put in the same amount of work or to potentially put their life on the line to have your back. And so I had to prove myself, not just to myself. I had to prove myself to my coworkers, my male coworkers. I had to prove myself to my supervisors. And I had to prove myself to the male, pop the offender population, because as a female working in a male penitentiary, they're looking for those who they can turn to their side. And that can be a variety of things. So it, it was a constant battle within myself and to realize it, not to take it personal because I wasn't the only female working there, but I had to realize that I had to prove myself to everybody else on a daily basis. My first facility wasn't as difficult simply because we had uh, offenders that were assigned to that facility. So those same offenders saw me every single day that I was there. When I got to my second facility, it was a diagnostic facility. So we had offenders that were coming in temporarily, and I was having to prove myself to myself and to the offender population that I will be respected as an individual, but I will also be respected as a corrections officer. And so the last two and a half years of my time with TDCJ, though I had an extremely good working relationship with everybody there and with my warden, who I still talk to to this day, it was all of us from that unit having to prove ourselves and having to set that initial experience with an offender who's just starting their time with the Texas prison system. Did you got any stories that you like to tell during this time? There's honestly so many stories. <laughs> Some of them are really funny because it involves me, I don't want to say getting injured, but not paying attention to where I'm walking and I walk straight into a like a windowsill. There are experiences that I've dealt with that you know, I can't speak too much about simply because of the position that I was in. I was the, what was known as the Safe Prisons PREA manager. So PREA stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act, uh, which was signed into law in 2003. And so I did investigations of uh, sexual assaults of offenders. Unfortunately, that's what happens in the prison system. TDCJ has zero tolerance policy. However, we understand that in that world, it unfortunately happens. So in that aspect, those were confidential investigations. I can't really get into 
any of it and then I was that's where I started my my gang career as a gang investigator was actually in the prison system and if you look back on history of Texas gangs a lot of it starts from the Texas prison system our major gangs here in Texas the history of gangs in Texas is actually the prison system so that was always super interesting to be involved in that. But yeah, there there are some stories, some funny stories. There are some really horrible stories. We had two officers that were killed within my time with TDCJ. And even though it wasn't on my facility, when one officer was killed, it impacted all of us. And we had two within one year apart. So, you know, there's a variety of stories and I don't know if we have enough time today to go over yeah. probably some of the good ones, but there, there is a lot that happens within those walls that stays within those walls for a variety of reasons, right? Confidentiality. Sometimes people don't want to know what's really happening behind the walls, but I've made a lot of good friends from working TDCJ. I still talk to a good number of my coworkers and I miss it. That surprises people when I say that, but I actually do miss it. My gray family, because our uniforms were gray. Mm. I, I miss it sometimes, but I, I enjoyed my time there, though it may seem like very little. It felt like four or five times that actual amount of time. Yeah, I, I've talked to folks that worked in similar correctional facilities as you described and the one guy he, he said something to me one time he said you have a whole variety of types of people that are in corrections and of course you're always leery of the ones that uh give you it might be a direct threat to you he said but you know there's some guys in there that are like so kind and so so <laughs> congenial and easy to talk to and whatnot that it, it said it was it, it was uh, mind-blowing that he would go from like one cell where he had to be on like high alert to the other one where he was just talking to the you know neighborhood joe that everybody knows it's been in there forever and never hurts a fly type of thing and he said that that was just messed with his mind a, a lot while he was in there dealing with all these different types of people. Yes, that's very true. I've dealt with, it was actually a father-son pair. The father was in TDCJ. The son was also in TDCJ and they were housed together and they were super respectful. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. A lot of the offenders didn't know how to pronounce my last name. And so to make it easy, I essentially gave them permission because in policy, offenders are not supposed not supposed to call you anything other than your name or like ma'am and sir. And so mm -hmm. I gave them permission to call me Miss P. So my last name is Pedrosa and starts with mm -hmm. a P. I was like, let's just make it easier and call me Miss P. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there were those offenders that, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, Miss P, no, Miss P. But at the end of the day, I realized that I was one against 500 on any given time. Mm -hmm. And I never let my guard down, no matter how respectful, how nice, how older or how younger they were. Because at the end of the day, at any at a split of a second, they can change. Uh, because they're there 24-7, 365 days out of the year. And I go and I do my time for the day and I get to walk out and I get to go home and I sleep in my own bed and I shower and 
I don't share my clothes. Um, and so that can be a very weird environment for people who are have this mindset that everybody who's behind the walls are just extremely rude or extremely aggressive and they are going to tell you that they're going to kill you. And then they see these, they interact with these, if you want to call them nicer offenders, um, it can mess with you. But I think if you go in to this profession in corrections with the mindset that let your no be mean no, you can't turn your yes to a no, and you must be professional at all times. I think that will help anybody within this profession. I've been asked before, what do you mean? It, it's harder to turn your yes to a no than your no to a yes. Because once you tell an offender yes, and you can't deliver, it it puts you in this position that it, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but offenders are not biggest fans of hearing yes, kind of like kids, right? You tell them yes, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you tell them no, what happens? It's kind of like that. So you know, I was a big proponent of, I'm going to tell you no every single time, but if I can turn it into a yes, I will, but I'm not going to tell you that I can turn it to a yes, um, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't make promises that I couldn't keep, whether I said I promised or I didn't. Hmm. I do want to move off the, the corrections topic, but before we do, if you were made either a warden or given a position of power, what would be something that you would like to change with the correction system? I think that's very, that's a very broad question. Mm -hmm. Or you can uh, box it in, box it in if it, if it helps you. Well, I think that's, that's still very broad simply mm -hmm. because the prison system in Texas is not the oldest in the United States, but it's, it's pretty old. Started with the Huntsville unit in 18, don't quote me on this. I think it's 48 <laughs> or 84. I know there's a four and an eight in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used to work at that facility mm -hmm. and there were at one point, I believe 109 facilities during my time working for TDCJ. Unfortunately, in order to change the infrastructure, it would cost millions, if not billions of dollars. I think one of the things if I could change and I had the ability to change would also cost money oh. <laughs> is the pay for corrections officers. It is not the most favorable position by any means in any of the criminal justice system professions. They deal with convicted felons, convicted murderers, and their pay is not well reflected of that. There's also a lot of turnover. And so because it, it, working in corrections, it's not for everybody. And that's okay. But I think if there's one thing, if I had the power and I had an unlimited amount of resources would be to pay the corrections profession security wise for money, simply because of what they do and what they deal with on a daily basis. So let's move on to you becoming an analyst then. You start your analyst career with the Texas Department of Public Safety. So let's talk about how, how you got there. Okay. Well, I by the time I started looking for positions, I was about, if you want to do a, a number, over 90% done with my, maybe 75% done with my uh, degree. Mm -hmm. So I was almost there and I realized, you know, maybe I should start looking for positions to be a crime analyst. And so I started looking. I looked for TDCJ also has analysts within the Office of Inspector General, but 
you know, in Texas, the premier law enforcement agency is the Texas Department of Public Safety. When you think of Texas DPS, you think of our state troopers or our Texas Rangers. And so they had openings and I applied for it and I got it. I had to wait a little bit just because of the timing and I was going through an audit at my facility, but, and it was closer to home because I was at the time in Huntsville and it was about an eight hour drive from home. And so I moved to Austin and started as an analyst with DPS. What types of tasks are you getting into at this time? So when I first started, I was actually with what was then known as the Real Time Crime Center. And unfortunately, I got stuck on night shift or midnights. <laughs> so I was 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. And so that was actually really rough. I had never been on a night shift. I've done overtime on nights, but never my full eight hours be on a night shift. And so I was really responsible with assisting, you know, the fusion center with requests from other agencies, monitoring for any kind of events that could potentially impact Texas in any one specific way. Mm-hmm. And so I was at the real-time crime center with the fusion center for about eight months before mm-hmm. I transferred to a, another unit, which was over uh, missing persons. Mm-hmm. I was there for about two months. And, and the reason it was two months is because at the time, the uh, assistant chief had gotten promoted to a regional director spot and had asked me if I would go and work for him at this other, in another region. And I loved working for him. I, you know, growing up through TDCJ, that that actually holds a lot of weight when one of your supervisors wants you to follow them. Mm. And so I did, I followed him to my final duty station, if you want to call it that, where I stayed until I left DPS and now being at the Pflugerville Police Department. I'm interested to know if you're working in corrections, dealing with a lot of people. You go become an analyst, and I'm just wondering, did it was did it feel like something was missing? Because you're not really dealing with a lot of people, at least face-to-face. So some of these real-time crime centers, you're dealing with people on the phone, you're dealing with a lot of computer work, you're, you might be working with some office coworkers, but you're not dealing with that day-to-day people that you normally would have dealt with in corrections. Was there an adjustment period there for you in terms of that? Yes, there's actually still adjustments even now. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was honestly really difficult um, when I first started working for DPS, um, simply because within working as a corrections officer, I never liked people walking behind me. I never Mm -hmm. liked people standing behind me, um, whether I knew them or not, right? My back Mm -hmm. was always to the wall. And so when people would walk up behind me, you know, my immediate reaction was to turn around And like, no, you can walk in front of me, probably a little bit more aggressive than they would have liked, you know, and so there was a huge adjustment. And even now there are, there's this word that likes to be referred to with people that have worked corrections and it is institutionalized. And yes, I am very much institutionalized. There are, you know, things that you do and say when you're working in a corrections environment that the average person does not understand. And so when you essentially go to, if you want to call it civilian life or what we call the free world, Mm -hmm. it's a a very hard transition that even to this day, I still struggle with. I don't like people walking behind me. I would rather you walk in front of me 
my vernacular sometimes comes out and I can be very aggressive. Certain words that I say don't translate well simply because <laughs> we had our own language, TDC, and it can be something as simple as, hey, look out, where I'm trying to catch your attention. You know, that that's super innocent, but some people are like, what do you mean, look out? Like, look out for what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, like, look out, excuse me. Like, excuse me. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I still struggle with that. And, you know, I reach out to my friends who still work in corrections because they understand me. They understand we've all been through the same thing to some degree. And yeah, I still struggle with it. <laughs> uh, I, my friends see it who have seen me throughout my my time are like, you still act like you work there and you don't. And I was like, that's not something that I can just turn off. I was yeah. only in, working in corrections for about four and a half years, but those four and a half years felt like 40. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to completely shut down as you're saying this, I'm just envisioning you giving a very aggressive no and your coworkers <laughs> saying, I just asked you if you wanted a donut. Yeah, it, I can be very aggressive sometimes. And it, it's it's not because I don't like the person or, you know, it's not my manners. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, there was a persona that you had to, you know, exude in the prison system. And it's not about, you know, I'm the biggest and baddest. It is, you know, you will respect me and I will tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, because you are in here and I am responsible for your safety and security. And so, yeah, it, it could be very interesting when I get people who have never met me and people see me in the same conversation and they're like, you know, that was a little aggressive, right? And I was like, no, it wasn't though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yelling. <laughs> So I do want to move on to Fugerville, but before we do, in terms of working for the Texas Department of Public Safety, when you think about that time, is there a major accomplishment that you think of, a story that you think of as you're learning the analyst trade, I guess, when you and you're thinking back, what comes to mind? I would say being able to bring in my knowledge of gangs mm -hmm. into my possession, my position as a crime analyst, I was able to use my knowledge and experience as a gang investigator with TDCJ to bring that knowledge to especially the troopers, right? The troopers are the ones out on the road making these stops. And sometimes we forget that the troopers may not be able to be participating in these trainings, these specialized trainings of gangs all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to use that knowledge that I had to be able to help these troopers to, to kind of learn what to look for, learn, you know, what questions to ask or how to ask them. And, you know, that was probably one of the best things that came because I was able to incorporate my corrections experience with my crime analyst experience. And I'm still friends with many troopers to this day and they still call me, which I love that <laughs> they, they see and they appreciate that experience that I have and the fact that I was willing to teach them. I actually saw a couple of them yesterday and they're like, we're still gonna call you. I was like, okay, just don't call me at night because I, I go to sleep <laughs> at night. <laughs> Obviously your time 
working directly with gangs, it, you learn all the trends, you learn everything that there is. But once you become an analyst, you can quickly lose your step in terms of knowing exactly what's going on with the gang situation. So how did you keep your gang knowledge sharp? So I was actually a member, just a member with the Texas Gang Investigators Association or TGIA. And so I met a lot of people, patrol officers, detectives, investigators who do it on the, you know, more law enforcement aspects of investigating gangs. And so I was able to keep those contacts with them and become friends with many people. And so if there was something that I could help them with, they would call me. And then in 2019, at the you know pushing of my then major at the time, who was a region director for the central region, kind of you know recruited me to run for uh, the, the another the other the second position. And so through that, back in 2019, I was elected as the the second central region director for TGIA and. Being able to use my knowledge, training and experience as a CO, working as a gang investigator, and then now as an analyst, I have been able to maintain a network and I've gone to trainings. And so I I try to keep up with what's happening in, in the gang world, whether it's street gangs, prison gangs, or OMGs. And I've been able to be a resource for many people whether it's from my analyst side or my gang side. And then sometimes it's a little bit of both, right? There's a, there are some instances in which, you know, we're looking at tattoos and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a photo of tattoos and I can, you know, pinpoint, hey, there's this that caught my attention could mean this. Hey, this is a known tattoo that's used by this specific gang. You may want to, you know, look into that. And so I've been able to incorporate it more recently than previously. Um, and so, yeah, I'm still highly involved in it. I've been able to coordinate intel meetings with some of these agencies that are surrounding me because I've been able to network and they know that I know the people and they know that I'm passionate about this and, you know, I'm all about intel sharing. And so it's been very useful to be able to incorporate both aspects, especially when you're talking about gangs and being able to be called to assist in an investigation that I may not necessarily be involved in, but because of my knowledge and experience, I can help them. Hi, this is Mary Berticelli. Would you like to solve a cold case? If your answer is yes, then enter a cold case from your agency into VICAP, the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Thanks. Hello, this is Joshua Todd, U.S. Border Patrol, Buffalo Sector Intelligence at Wellesley Island Station. And I'd like you to remember that numbers on the page are reflective of the humans that we serve. We've had a recent report of an overdose in the county, and we discussed it at a local meeting. And then later that day, I went to the barber and got a haircut, and the woman was visibly distraught. And we got to chatting, and it was actually her son that overdosed and, and passed away that, that last week. So... While we do a lot of reports and they are numbers on the spreadsheet, they end up uh, reflecting the, the humans that we do serve. All right. So then how did you get from the Texas Department of Public Safety to Pflugerville PD? So 
I had been looking for a new position for a little bit. You know, it, there were certain aspects of working in the the last detail that I was on that, you know, I thought it was my time to kind of step away. And working at the state level is very different from working at the local level. And so I wanted that experience working at the local level. And mm-hmm. so Pflugerville is just outside of Austin. And so they had a position that was coming open. Pay was great. It was actually more money. Not to say money is everything, but, you know, that plays a role in it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I put in for it. They, they loved my experience. They loved what I was about because I wasn't just about sitting at a desk. I'm involved in a whole lot of associations right? So I've talked about Texas Gang Investigators Association, but I'm also the vice president for ILEA, the Lone Star chapter. I'm a member of IACA. I'm a member of the International Latino Gang Investigators Association. I'm actually the Texas rep for them. I'm a member of the International Outlaw Motorcycle Gang Investigators Association. Um, So, you know, it's not just about sitting at a desk It's about networking and what is it that you're passionate about. And so I had what the chief essentially envisioned because of the the agency he came from, that my position could be not just a crime analyst, but my official title is actually crime intelligence analyst. So it incorporates both crime analysis and criminal intelligence um, analysis all into one position. And so... I really liked what it was about. I am currently the only analyst. However, the vision is to potentially bring in another analyst, hopefully sooner rather than later, but you know, that's about my pay grade. And so I, there's a lot of potential here. And I really liked that. It seems to me that once again, there has to be a little bit of an adjustment for you because when you go from essentially the state police of Texas, you know, with the Department of Public Safety, and now you're going to an agency that you're the sole analyst. That has to be something where it's a pretty big adjustment for you. The Being the only analyst was not the biggest adjustment because when I followed that region director, I was the only analyst at that mm-hmm. position and in, in that region. So it wasn't too difficult for me to adjust to that. The biggest adjustment that I'm still facing even now is... I went from a essentially fine-tuned machine with DPS Mm -hmm. where we had our own division for um, the analysts and we had standard operating procedures and policies and expectations and this is how you're going to handle this and this is how you're going to handle that to now coming to a department who may not have had a analyst to the experience and caliber as me mm-hmm. right and so because they had not had a intelligence analyst they had only had a crime analyst and then before that was like a data analyst or something and then an administrative analyst so they had not had what crime analysts and criminal intelligence analysts are doing at dps and so that has been the biggest adjustment is essentially teaching my department what i can do based off of my experience that I did when I was with DPS. And this is something else that I could do, but I couldn't do at the time for a variety of reasons. And so that has been the biggest adjustment (laughs) that I'm still facing even to this day. 
So what are the major crimes, major issues that you're dealing with at the police department? So different from like state police, right? We're actually dealing with thefts. I don't want to call them basic thefts, but essentially, you know, thefts from department stores, which is not something that the state police was going to worry about. Right. Mm -hmm. If you had a theft at a target, you're not going to call state police to be like, hey, can you assist us with this investigation? And so I've done that to something a little bit more intense, like a homicide. I've assisted on homicides before, so that wasn't anything new for me. There's a, there's a lot more specialization availability here. You know, we have person crimes and property crimes. And so whereas with the state, I was expected to know everything, but a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So I really wasn't specialized in a whole lot aside from gangs. And so coming into the local level, it's, it's very different. Pflugerville is not a huge city. It's pretty, it's kind of small when you compare it to like Austin. And so it's been interesting to learn about these more smaller types of investigations. They're not as, you know, they're not the quote unquote sexy crimes, but then we have those that, you know, are, are very, you know, serious, like a homicide or crimes against children or, you know, sexual assaults where now there's a victim involved. So that's been interesting to be able to switch the types of crimes that I'm involved in to now fit a local level, you know, department. Let's get into the the bigger conversation then about gangs. And let's go back to your statement before where you talked about the prison gangs being the originator. Let's start from there and then we can just work into a, a general conversation. Yeah. So the prisons in Texas were pretty crazy. <laughs> That's probably the best way that I can describe it. In the prison system back in the 80s, you had wars happening between rival gangs. And, you know, it's you think of gangs, you think of probably the most well-known is going to be Mexican Mafia of California and the Aryan Brotherhood of California. In Texas, we have our own versions of those. We have the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas and the Mexicana Mi, or law enforcement likes to call them the Texas Mexican Mafia. And so, you know, we had a little bit of a California influence to some degree as these prison gangs started making their way into Texas. And so you had homicides that were happening in the prison system. Crazy to think that these offenders were killing each other, but they were. They were having all-out wars amongst each other, and a lot of it was along racial lines. So you had the white supremacy gangs fighting the Hispanic gangs when you're talking about the prison system or the prison gangs. And so they set the tone. We also came up with gang laws in Texas, and a lot of it came because the history of gangs in Texas was the Texas prison gangs. So the there is a rich, I don't know, if you want to call it a rich culture or rich history that I could probably talk about the prison gangs for days. It was actually my dissertation was gangs. And one of the aspects that I hit on was the Texas prison gangs. And so, you know, there is a whole lot to learn from California prison gangs because they have an influence in Texas, but the, the Texas prison gangs are their own beast in and of, the of themselves. Okay. Now, I wrote a paper 
geez, oh, it's been almost 20 years probably now. And uh, when I was in Maryland working for the Washington Baltimore Haida, and one of the interesting things I found was, at least during the time in Maryland, trying to make sure I box this in, in case it's changed. But one of the things I found was folks were maybe part of a certain prison gang when they were in the correctional system. But then once they went out to back onto the street, back into the real world, they didn't necessarily stay all in the same gang, right? It wasn't like there was this feeder program directly between prison gangs and then the street gangs. And I, I found that interesting that that folks could be part of one gang while they're in corrections, but once they got out, they actually may be uh, separated and be part of rival gangs once they got out. Is that something that you see down there in Texas? So yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of hard to kind of say one way or another, simply because in, and I can't speak for the entire prison system of the United States, but in Texas, the offender self-segregates and they self-segregate predominantly through race, mm -hmm. right? So you'll have the whites, the blacks, and the Hispanics. And so if you have a Hispanic inmate or offender who is a member of the Bloods or the Crips out in the streets, once he goes to the prison system, the Bloods and the Crips are predominantly black. Mm -hmm. So he's going to have to align himself with another gang based off of his race and he could either be a prison gang like the mexican mafia who are in administrative segregation or he's going to try to join a clique that is not ad seg so he can still be in general population and so it, it's kind of hard because if if he were to join a texas prison gang like the mexican mafia or the texas syndicate and he gets out of tdc he can't go back to the bloods or the crips or whatever he was before he did state time because a lot of those prison gangs are blood in and blood out and so you know that individual offender is going to have to make a very hard decision on you know what's most important to him and so it, it's yes and no with the street gangs what you're seeing now what are the current trends? What do you normally tell people when they ask you? I'm like, oh, you're into gangs. What are, what are you seeing? So one of the biggest problems right now are actually hybrid gangs. And it's not a Texas problem. It's happening everywhere. While we still have our more historically uh, accurate, if you want to call it that, of the gang world, like the prison gangs and the nationally recognized gangs such as the Bloods and the Crips, and, you know, we do have those, but we are, we are starting to see the younger generation of gang members being hybrid gangs. And essentially what a hybrid, there's this long definition of what hybrid gangs are, but basically you could have a member of one gang and a member of another gang that are, may or may not be rivals, actually also be a member of a different gang under a different name. And now they're a hybrid gang because you're now a member of this one gang, but you're also a member of your home gang, if you wanna, if that's the best way to kind of explain it. And unfortunately with these hybrid gangs is they're also jumping names. They're, it's really based off of like their friend group. 
and they're coming up with, you know, their name, they have a sign or symbol, they have their preferred uh, criminal act, but then something happens within their friend group and they go and make, they leave and they go and make friends with somebody else. And now they're a whole different gang. And so they're, they're not following the traditional, you know, rules of being a gang member. Sounds like they have a loyalty problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's just it. Is, is it really about loyalty or is it really all about the Benjamins, right? That's what we like to say. Is it really more about money? And it's not really about loyalty. A lot of these gang members that are traditionally uh, rivals don't care about the rivalry because they only care about the money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these hybrid gangs is currently an issue and it, they're an issue everywhere. It's not unique to Texas. Oh, but it seems to me that, and and I'm guessing they're probably careful, but I would. it seems to me that these hybrid gangs that, the the bigger gangs, the the more traditional gangs would just cut them out, right? If they if they're coming on the the larger gangs turf or getting impacting their business, they're bigger, the bigger the bigger fish is going to win. But I'm I'm guessing with that there's 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 plenty of Benjamins out there. Maybe they're <laughs> able to navigate the waters to where they're not, you know getting in the way of the bigger gangs i mean i i think there's a a lot that that comes that comes into play right Mm -hmm. you know at least for texas is is where these gangs are these hybrid gangs and these traditional gangs are operating Mm -hmm. is can they operate in a location where the mexican mafia are running it do the mexican mafia even care that they're running it i don't know i can't answer that question is it something where they're going to take one criminal act too far before they get the attention of the more traditional gangs. Maybe there is still so much unknowns because every hybrid is different from the next hybrid. Mm-hmm. So are these, so these hybrids typically, how big are they? Honestly, I, I, they, they, they vary. Um, mm-hmm. They, they could be smaller for three or four or they could be much larger. It just depends on each hybrid and what youths are involved in this. And are they friends, family? Do they have, are, have they been around longer or are they new? I think that there's a whole lot of factors that come into play as to the size of any one group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the larger gangs, are they sticking with the traditional hierarchy or are they going more of a flatter model where they'll have more managers and less middle management just because law enforcement trying to cut the head off the dragon, so to speak? Well, that's kind of hard to 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 kind of pin down, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're talking about more traditional gangs, and especially when you're talking about the prison gangs, just because they're in prison doesn't mean that they are not still controlling what's happening out in the free world or out in mm-hmm. the street. Mm-hmm. And so... Without pinpointing to any one group, it, it's kind of hard to really pin that down because where are their leadership? Mm-hmm. Are, is there is there leadership in Texas in the Texas prison system? Is there leadership in the federal prison system? Is there leadership able to make those decisions and those calls from wherever they are at? Is their leadership a more 
fine-tuned leadership like they're the older you know the ogs or are they younger and they're just more disorganized and mm -hmm. that's gonna be up it's gonna be different for each individual gang mm -hmm. and then one of the things i want to talk to you about in terms of gangs is some of the other trends that we see in law enforcement analysis and how that's impacting gangs so you go to any law enforcement analysis conference now you're going to see a section on social media and the impact of social media on investigations is obviously profound. I'm curious to know how social media has impacted the gangs. Social media is one of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Social media can be extremely useful. I think what analysts need to kind of rewire in their brain is that just because they're older, right, the subject is older, does not mean that they are not on social media. I've had investigators tell me, well, he is, I'm just going to throw out a number, 58. There's no way that he's on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And then I find his Facebook account. And so you never know what they're posting and where they're posting. I heard a couple years ago that Facebook is the new MySpace. It's the older people that are using Facebook. And while I mm -hmm. took that very personal, because I don't think I'm, I'm that old, I have seen that not actually be the case. I have seen 17-year-olds be on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was even up until this morning when I was doing some searches. And so I, I think for analysts is to not get caught up in this stereotype of who is or is not on social media. You know, TikTok is the, the new thing right now for the moment anyways. And I have seen plenty of prison gang members on TikTok. And we're talking about the older, not just the older, but the ranking members be on TikTok. And so, you know, don't assume that they're not on social media. It might take a little bit longer to find them, right? We're, we're in this generation of not using their actual names because it's so easy to pick your own profile name. But just because you can't find it or just because they're a certain age or a certain uh, region doesn't mean that they don't have social media. It just might take a little bit longer to find. And, you know, so keep keep kind of like being aggressive in your searches because you never know. You might find exactly what you're looking for. Just like you, maybe I would ex one would expect is they're using social media, put out a certain message to market to to recruit uh, new members is that pretty much it or is there something that you wouldn't expect so i have actually never seen actual recruitment on social media that's not to say that it's not out there mm -hmm. i have not seen it a lot of it is literally just like flashing who they are mm -hmm. they're posting their photos they're throwing up their signs they're displaying their colors their you know, for outlaw motorcycle gangs, they're displaying their their cuts, and so like it it it's not necessarily about recruitment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be to some extent, right? Uh, look at who I'm with, and maybe you'd want to join. But a lot of it is literally what any regular Joe Schmo is doing on social media is posting selfies, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're posting pictures to share, and so yeah, it's it's not necessarily one thing over another. Is Gang membership trending up or down? It's 
without stats being in front of me, gangs will be there for a long time. I don't want to say forever, mm-hmm. but I think that's a safe bet to say forever. You're always going to have gangs around and you're always going to have that generational impact. Right. Where you have a grandfather, father, son that's still going. You have just because a gang has their leadership or has members in the prison system doesn't mean that they're not still recruiting within the prison system. So I can't say it's going up or down because unfortunately we don't have an accurate number of gang membership because that would require us to be able to document every single gang member across the United States for every single gang. And while we have gang laws that help us for that, we also have limitations because we have gang laws that tell us what is a gang and who can be a gang member by law, right? And who can be documented. And so without a hard number, it's really hard to say. You don't know the accurate number because you have those that don't report. Mm And so but, it's kind of it's kind of hard to give a number or a a decision. It's it's more of an opinion, right? And I would hate to give my opinion and then be wrong any which way because I think they're always going to be there. Let's talk about training a little bit in terms of gang training. What what are things that you like to see? Maybe what are some things you see out there that annoy you? <laughs> we'll go on both sides of the coin. <laughs> You know, being with TGIA, I actually coordinate training for my region. And so I try to really get a, a grasp of what's happening within my region, right? Like, what are the problems that agencies are seeing that maybe I'm not seeing in my own agency? And so, you know, I, I try to take on the thoughts and opinions of, of others when it comes to training. I don't think that you can ever be too trained on something because you never know what you don't know until you find out that you didn't know it, right? And then now you do know. So, it, you know, training, I think, is, is, is always necessary. Now, one of the things that... I have to be very careful with how I say this. <laughs> I think when people are training topics that only focus on trying to make something more sexy and not acknowledging the fact that maybe we messed up on this. This is how we would have done it better if we could go back. But this is so that you can learn from our mistakes right? We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're not acknowledging the mistakes were made, that you're not doing anybody any favors, right? Because if you did something one way, and it didn't work out, well, why didn't it work out? Mm -hmm. Or why did it work out? Because maybe the reason why it didn't work out for you is because of X, Y, and Z, or the reason it worked for you is X, Y, and Z, but it wouldn't work out for us because of A, B, and C. And so I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve when it comes to training is when I see topics and I know, but I know you messed up on this one aspect and why don't you acknowledge it? Nobody wants to admit that they messed up, but you're not doing anybody's, anybody a favor when you don't acknowledge it and be like, we messed up. This is what we did wrong but this is how we think that we could do it better. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think there's, you know, you have the sensitivity level, right? So yes. there, there's obviously training that 
maybe not that ever anybody could sign up for, but you didn't, doesn't necessarily may get the uh, intelligence sensitivity, right? And then you get to training where it, it does have such a certification that you really want to make sure that those that are in the room understand the the conversation is sensitive. But at that level, though, I I would hope that they're really getting into the crux of issues, even if they're not fully acknowledging that they made a mistake. There's certainly, I would hope behind those closed doors, when you really get into deep conversations about this stuff, that they're, you know, focusing on the issues and focusing on solutions. I would hope so as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't speak for any one presenter, but I would hope that they would take the evaluation, you know, seriously, the critique seriously, and maybe have an inner reflection of, you know, what occurred that now they're 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 presenting to other people outside of their agency and really realizing like okay, what I said could actually impact somebody else and somebody else's experience, somebody else's training that could potentially get them in a bind. And so learning from that, because you never want to provide training and then provide false information, whether you meant to or not, right? Like I know I take that very personal is if I find that I said something and I misspoke and now it's taken in a different direction, And I want to make sure that I correct it. Like, that's actually not what I meant. This is what I mean. Here is the research that I've done. Here is the investigations that I've assisted on where I got this information from. The last discussion I want to have with you, and it kind of dovetails off of this idea of training, is you, you have your law enforcement analysis conferences. You have your gang investigators conferences. I think a a good team up conference would be between those associations. I understand obviously it's going to take some effort and we're talking about years out before it could happen, but I do think members of law enforcement analysis association and members of gang investigate really could come together and and have a kick-ass conference. I agree. I think that there's so much potential for that. I think there's a lot of logistics to kind of really like hammer out, right? Because you have states that have gang investigators associations and you have some states that don't. And should it be something where it's a week-long conference of bringing in, you know, subject matter experts on different aspects from within those gang investigators associations, right? What's happening in California, while maybe similar to what's happening in Texas, it's going to be also different. Mm-hmm. And so bringing in those two aspects on a more national level versus, you know, when you're talking about international associations, you know, we're bringing in people from all across the world. Mm-hmm. And the presenters are being very focused on their area. And so bringing in GIAs from across the nation to be able to present what's happening within their area, I think would be amazing to have a, you know, national level gang conference encompassing the associations and not just for analysts, but, you know, also for sworn police officers, because, you know, ultimately the sworn are going to be the ones making these arrests. So I, I, there's, 
great potential for that. There's just a lot of logistical, you know, questions that would be let out. And so I would love to meet with somebody if they wanted to make this happen. We can make this happen. Let's get it done. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words of the World. And this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Bill, what are your words to the world? Don't be afraid to network with people, whether they're analysts or whether they're sworn or commissioned. You never know who you're going to meet that is now your point of contact down the road, and they're going to be able to connect those dots with you. Very good. Why well, leave every guest with you? Give me just enough to talk bad about you later. Oh. <laughs> But I do appreciate you being on the show, Belle. Thank you so much. Congratulations, by the way, on becoming a doctor and you be safe. Thank you. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.